Welcome to the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.vlchurch.tv. Based on what God's already been doing, either this is going to be really good or not so good. I'm hoping for the first one. I'm Pastor Joey. For those of you that are new, we just want to echo this every week. Everyone matters to God. You matter. Your story matters. What brought you here matters. He sees you. He knows you. He knows exactly what you need. And uh, my prayer is is that uh, God speaks to you through this message. We are in week three of our series, Jesus. And what we've been doing is we've been using this time of Lent that many... We'll uh, enter a time of prayer and fasting to prepare their hearts for Easter. We've been using this time to go back and rediscover how Jesus has made such a huge impact in the world. And uh, it, if you didn't know, any, any little amount of research will show you that the central figure of all of human history is Jesus Christ. The central figure. And even secularists will point to Jesus as having the most profound impact in all the world. And so this, this poor... Uh, carpenter from Nazareth in a place that no one took seriously rose up to be the most prominent figure of all of history. That's pretty amazing. And so uh, we're, we're now in week three. The first week we discovered Jesus is our purpose. He brought purpose and meaning back to life, back to uh, the understanding that everyone matters because we're all made in the image of God. It doesn't matter if you're red, yellow, black, or white. Everyone's precious in his sight. Right? So, and so God's restored that. He's restored the value of human life. And then last week we uh, no, talked about him being the equalizer. That there, there's no label that matters anymore other than the label of Christ. It doesn't matter what group or category you put yourself in. The most important label that we could put on us is Jesus himself. And if we're in Christ, we all are united and can find something to bring us together. So today we're going we're gonna to continue to follow on that same line. But I would, I want to wonder, would you humor me for a minute? I, I have an illustration, but it involves everybody in here. Would you, would you humor me? Can I get everyone to stand to your feet? And if you're a lady, would you please move to the right side of the auditorium, my left? And if you're a man, would you please move to the left side of the auditorium, your right? We'll give you some time to shift and adjust. All right, go ahead. You can stay seated. You can take a seat. But we're going we're gonna to segregate this morning. So just pick a seat on the side of the, on the, side of the auditorium. It doesn't matter where. We just want the guys over here and the ladies over here. Awesome. So I appreciate you moving. I know it's good to get the blood flowing, but sometimes it's awkward. You're like, man, my, my cushion just formed my, to my hind parts, and it's all warm, and I'm in a cold, hard seat, you know, so, but I appreciate that so much. So there is, as we saw last week, God, through Christ, has brought equality back to humanity, that, that we now see everybody as equally valuable, but yet there's still is some division in our world, in our culture, especially 
uh, highlighting a specific issue or a specific point of division between uh, groups of people, a historical battle that's been raging since the dawn of time. It's the battle of the sexes. It is this war between who's the best, men or women. And this goes back all the way to Eden. There's a reason why the ladies ate the apple first. <laughs> Just saying. Just saying. But this goes all the way back. And what does this division create? It creates bitterness, resentment, retaliation, uh, all, all of these hardships that, that we experience today. But think about God makes Adam and Eve in the garden, and it's all good. Why? Because he said it. He said, wow, that is very good. It's so good. They had this perfect environment. Nothing was wrong. Uh, I, I, I love just thinking about what was actually life was like in the garden. When God brings the judgment, he tells Adam that the ground will no longer yield fruit for you. But it's going to yield thorns and thistles. It'll be from the sweat of your brow that you're able to produce food. That means prior to, it didn't do that. He didn't have to sweat to get food. He was connected to God. And when God spoke, things happened. That means when Adam spoke, things happened. So the, just think about just the environment that they were in and the way that we were able to work and move and fulfill God's purpose prior to the fall. It just blows my mind what we actually lost. But God creates Adam, but notices there's a problem. He's lonely. And so he creates woman, and it says that he makes him a helper. God gave Adam a task to do, but he can't accomplish it on his own. So he makes a woman who is just right for him. A perfect complement to what God created in him. To do what he could not do so that together they could accomplish what God designed for their lives. And so they're, they're going about this life, perfect relationship. Everything's going well. And then the dumb snake shows up. And we don't know how long or how many conversations. It was enough that when he showed up, Eve wasn't shocked or surprised that a snake was talking to her. This is a poetic reflection of the enemy, the serpent, uh, we call the devil. He shows up and begins to twist the truth with Eve, gets her to choose to rebel against God. Adam joins along with her. Sin enters the picture, and all hell breaks loose. Everything begins to fall apart. The serpent begins to wield death like a weapon, and God reveals to us through his uh, judgment on Eve, or really the conversation he has with Eve, that not only will we struggle to fulfill our purposes, women will struggle and toil in raising children, which is part of their purpose. Men will struggle and toil in the field, which is part of their purpose. But now something else is going to happen. There is going to be a breakdown in human relationships between men and women. In Genesis 3.16 the Bible says, then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth, and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. Now, before I get into trouble, I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for your word. It doesn't return void. God, it is here to be a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. 
And God, we know that everything you have proclaimed leads us to the very best life that we could have. Jesus, you said, I've come that you might give us life and life more abundantly. So God, we ask you through your Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, a mind that understands, and a heart ready to believe all that you have for us today. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right. Let me be very clear. This is not God saying, this is what I want for humanity. That's how this has been twisted because of the issue he's actually addressing in this passage. It has been twisted through all of time that men are to rule and women are to serve. And what has happened is that women rise up and say, you ain't going to control me. I'm going to control. And then men say, no, you ain't. I'm putting my foot down. I'm going to rule. Welcome to the birthplace of chauvinism and feminism. You're welcome. What is chauvinism? It's the belief that men are superior and women are beneath them. That women just need to mind their place. What is feminism? It's the belief that women are superior, that they don't need a man, and they can do what men can do and better. And we see this in our culture everywhere. Everywhere. This also breeds a type of toxic masculinity and toxic femininity. Toxic masculinity is simply a, an imposition or a perception that only certain types of behaviors and interests can be considered manly or masculine. And of course, according to uh, modern definitions, anything that stands up or opposes feminism is considered toxic masculinity in our culture. Now, we, we see this in the Bible. Uh, if we go back to the story of um, Isaac, which is Abraham's son, he, he has two twin sons when, uh, when he's older. He has uh, Jacob and Esau. Jacob's the, uh, the less hairy one, and Esau's the hairy one. You know, Esau's name literally means hairy. Right? It's, it's like you got named because of what you look like when you came out. I'm so glad I didn't live in ancient Israel. But here you got twin, twins. It says in the Bible, this is your Bible. Isaac preferred Esau because he was a man of the wilderness and loved the game that he hunted in the field. Esau was a man's man. He was a hunter. He was out in the woods. He was a warrior. Jacob was preferred by his wife, Rebecca, because Jacob liked to stay home and cook. Think about it. The dad prefers the boy, but mommy has her little boy, right? It's the way it's described in Scripture. But here's the deal. We know Jacob was no sissy. He wrestled God and won. So we have a twisted perception based on the sin issue we all wrestle with. 
in our lives. Toxic femininity can uh, take different forms in our culture. There's a particular definition, and I personally believe it was created by feminists because it's simply anything that props up toxic masculinity. You know, feminists believe there's nothing good about men, essentially, that the only thing that is good is what can be contained in women. And so anything that causes a woman to be diminished or encourages masculinity in men is considered toxic femininity. But I would define it this way, that it's a mindset that opposes traditional or biblical views of masculinity and femininity and works to eradicate any formal definitions or behaviors in men that are encouraged by men or behaviors that want to burn down the patriarchy and set up a matriarchy. That what they want to do is they don't want to level the playing field. They just want to destroy what we have and rise up above it. So I think we can see how this is affecting our culture. I mean, think about sporting programs. Man, when I was young, it was, we were taught how to win games, not just have fun at games. Right? There are things in our culture that is having an effect through uh, both toxic masculinity, but also our culture is becoming more feminized as we can't even encourage men to be men or boys to be boys in the, in the positive way. Men were made to work into war. They don't play games to have fun. They play games to win. Ladies, you want your men to win your heart. If they don't have any competitive spirit, how are they going to do that? Right there, So there's a nature of men that needs to be encouraged, but in a healthy, God-honoring way. And the same thing with femininity. Um, these types of issues are having unintended consequences. And, and I really, not that I want to harp her on feminism, but I just think it's funnier. Um, I'm going to show you a video to show some, maybe un, some unintended consequences feminism is having on our culture today. Roll film. Toxic masculinity is a problem. <laughs> Hi, my name is Jerem Hoff. I've been married for 12 years and I am a feminist. You know, a lot of men have trouble saying that they're a feminist because they think it's emasculating or something, but not me. I believe that men and women are equal. Anything I can do, my wife can do too. The idea that just because I have testosterone, I'm better at things is reductive and quite frankly, it's insulting. Honey, you get that tire changed yet? I've, uh, I'm meeting the, the guys for a brewski in about 20 minutes, so if we could move that along, that'd be fantastic. By tossing aside the shackles of the patriarchy, we both benefit. I get more time to play video games made for children, and she gets more time to do the things that she loves to do, like my laundry. Spider! Honey, there's a spider! I'm a good husband. Some say that chivalry is dead, but I say you can be chivalrous and a feminist at the same time. See? A thank you would be nice. Society has told me my whole life, be a man or man up. But feminism has rewired my brain to say woman up or girl power or plunge that toilet, woman. I just hope that I can play a small part in dismantling these institutions for the next generation. I make sure that my daughters know that they can do anything. Hey, how's that firewood coming, sweetie? It's gonna be a cold winter. So learn from us. My wife and I are proof that you don't have to fall into problematic gender roles in your marriage. Isn't that right, honey? Give me all your money! Oh, here's a gun! Honey, do something! 
be the change you want to see in the world by standing up to the systemic power imbalances between men and women by standing up to this man while I run away. Thanks, feminism. You saved my life. I love the Babylon Bee. They uh, are a satire site. You can get their stuff on online, uh, YouTube, or or on their blog. They have a lot of religious stuff too. Um, really funny. But um, I just like to poke fun at the fact that sometimes there are unintended consequences to things we allow to permeate our culture. But the feminism is not just a pushback and an, an attempt to liberate women out from underneath oppression. It's, it's backfiring in a lot of different ways. And it actually, I think, is causing, especially young boys, this, this, now this new condition where they mature less quickly than they used to. There is a slow maturation rate, and it's not uncommon that we see uh, boys really ages 20 to 30 years old still sleeping in their mama's basement working on their high score on Fortnite. Right? So there, there, is, there is a condition in our culture that's working against men growing up to be men and women growing up into who God created them to be. And it is also creating a chasm, a divide, which is the source of so much conflict in human relationships. How we're even supposed to have relationship with the opposite sex, including in marriage. And as we saw last week, again, Jesus came to restore equality. This is one of the things that he did, equality for all people made in the image of God. And again, the only label that matters is not your sex, it's not your nation of origin, it's not your skin color. The only label that matters is Christ. Jesus Christ and him crucified, and that unites us all together. But he didn't just come to restore our understanding of purpose and meaning and equality. He came to restore God's original design for relationships, how we treat one another, especially God's design for marriage. In regard to how we treat each other, he not only gave us the two greatest commandments, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is equal to it, love your neighbor as yourself, right? Like the two greatest commandments. He also gave us the golden rule that's found in Luke 6, 31. It says, do to others as you would like them to do to you. We don't have to ask, what would Jesus do? We have to ask, what would I like them to do for me? If we would just think selfishly on someone else's behalf, we would complete all of the law, Jesus said. Loving God and loving other people. And so if, if you think about the term, go the extra mile, that comes from Jesus. He says if in that day and time, soldiers, the Roman soldiers would often force the Jews to carry their equipment, and it was common to go for a mile. And Jesus said, if you get asked to carry the Roman soldiers' equipment for a mile, offer them to go too. If you're sued in court over your shirt, give them your tunic also. Like, like, go above and beyond. Do for someone else, especially those who are against you, what you would want them to do for you. Why? Because of love. If we look at our culture through the lens of Jesus, there should not be any inequalities that exist among us, even between the sexes, because we are treating others the way we would want to be treated. Employers, they don't pay people differently looking through the lens of Jesus. You pay men and women the same. 
You, you don't promote just men. You also promote women if they're both qualified for the job. Why? Because that's how we would want to be treated. There are things that Jesus has brought to the table that satisfies the inequalities if we're looking through the lens of the Lord. But more than just platonic relationships, Jesus came to revolutionize marriage. And what I mean by revolutionize is I mean return it back to what it was originally designed to be. If you think about the Garden of Eden again, the first target Satan aimed at was the first marriage. The first target Satan pointed at to cause all this chaos was the first family. It was the first marriage. It separated, that sin separated them from God. That was the first goal because their covering was gone. And then Satan came after the family to divide, to conquer, to bring these dysfunctions into the marriage relationship. President Lincoln is known for saying around the time of the Civil War, a house divided cannot stand. But he wasn't the first one to say it. Jesus said it. He says a house divided cannot stand. So the enemy understands that if you create division in the home, you can corrupt, you can destroy God's purposes in every other way. And so this is what he does. He goes after the family. He creates dysfunction in relationships. And along in civil societies, because civil societies since the beginning of time have developed into what is called a patriarchal system. This is where men are generally in charge in leadership versus uh, a very small minority of, of societies that were matriarchal. But for uh, the vast majority of societies in all of history have been patriarchal systems in these societies, especially in the ancient Israel, men began to divorce their wives just because they made them unhappy. Like it became this thing like, you're not pleasing me. You're not doing what I want you to do. You're not listening to me. You're not doing for me. Then they would divorce their wives and often leave them helpless and homeless because the man controlled everything. He had controlled all the finances. He was educated. The woman wasn't. All the power was in the man's uh, hand. If you look through the, the genealogies in the scripture, you see, and so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. It's generally men. He fathered so-and-so who fathered so-and-so. Very rarely do you have a woman's name inserted in the genealogies. So it's just understood that men in power often held all of the power, and when they divorced their wives, she was often left helpless and homeless. And if she remarried, she was then considered an adulteress and shunned even further in society. This is why in Malachi 2.16, God through the prophet Malachi, he says, I hate divorce, says the Lord. Speaking to a nation full of divorce. So it's not like the Jews had this understanding that they had like this, this center or core center on marriage and they had it all figured out. They were struggling through the same thing. But he says, I hate divorce, says God, to divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty. God says, I hate what divorce does to people. It's cruel. It's painful, especially for the women in these cultures, because they were often the ones who got the short end of the stick. So guard your heart. Don't be unfaithful to your wife. But even though this is God's heart, this is not the way people are. My, my grandfather before he passed away, I had many spiritual conversations with him, and he gave me some really great advice one time. 
because I was frustrated about something somebody was doing, I think. He said, Joey, you have to understand, people don't do what they should do. They do what they do do. People don't do what they should do. They do what they do do. And then I added, and do do smells. Right? People don't always do what they should. And God's saying, I don't want this for you. It's painful. It, it brings hardship, but people are doing it anyway. It's the part of the brokenness in the world because of sin. Sin is always an issue in the hearts of sinners. Sin is always an issue in the hearts of sinners. So in Genesis 3, when God is pronouncing judgment on the serpent, the enemy in the garden, he did not only just curse him because of what he did leading Adam and Eve astray, but he did something specific. Genesis 3, 14 and 15 says, Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. So this is the judgment on the serpent, on the enemy. And what's interesting here is when he says, you will crawl on your belly. Many scholars believe this is the moment God takes Satan from his place of authority as the guardian, that, the cherub that guarded the throne of God. This is the time he cast him out of that place of authority. He says that where you were before, you're not going to be there. You're going to be beneath where you once were because of this wickedness, this sin. And the phrase groveling in the dust can also be translated, you will eat dust. And that term dust is not just the ground or the dirt, but it's also spiritually or metaphorically used of the underworld. So what God is saying is like you're being thrown out of heaven where my presence is, where there's life and life more abundantly. You're going to be sent down to a lower place where you are going to grovel, where you're going to eat death. This is where Satan becomes the lord of the underworld. The dust is going to be your meal, which is why Jesus says the enemy exists to do nothing but to steal, kill, and destroy. He knows nothing but destruction because he grovels in the dust. He grovels in the dust. And just as significant as this is in this moment, there is also a prophecy given about one who would come he says, I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, but you will strike his heel. There is one coming, and you're going to do your best to come against him, but you're only going to slow him down. He's going to crush you. So this, this thing you've been after, bringing destruction in the world, being separating God from his people, coming after families to bring all sorts of disruption and destruction, there is one coming who's going to put an end to all that once and for all. And why does it matter that Jesus came to restore families? Well, it's also well known, and according to a blog post on USAID.gov by Kathleen Strotman, the executive director of Congressional Coalition on Adoption Institute, she writes, here's what we know. We know that strong families are the building blocks of strong communities, and strong communities are the building blocks of strong nations. Why does Satan come after family? Because to destroy the family means to destroy the nation, and there's one nation he has his mind set on, the nation or the people of God. So he's going to come after your family any way he can. 
He's been after the family from the beginning, changing how it looks to how it functions. Because, in fact, we live, if we live and move like God designed, the earth would be filled with his glory and not with the destruction that the enemy so desires. So the coming of Jesus brings with it a restoration of original design for the family. And Jesus even confronts this issue as he's talking to these religious leaders. They, they come to him with an issue. They're always trying to trip him up and find ways to catch him, like get him, like gotcha questions. And so they come up with this question about marriage in Matthew 9, chapters 4 through 6. They're like, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Like they knew what the law said. They knew there were provisions in there, but they were trying to catch him on something they could use against him. And Jesus says something very specific. In verse 4, he says, haven't you read the scriptures? Which means God's been saying this since the beginning of time. Haven't you read? Like, you're supposed to be learned men. You spent all day studying the scriptures, learning. Haven't you read this in the scripture? He says, they record from the beginning, which means God's never changed his mind. It's never changed. This is what it's been from the beginning. That God made them male and female. There was an original intention behind the original design. There is a purpose for it. There's a divine purpose for the sexes. He says that he made them male and female. And this explains why a man leaves his father and mother, is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. You want to know why marriage exists? It's because God made men and women. That's why it exists. The fact that men and women exist is the reason why marriage exists. They are united into one, and since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God's joined together. Let no one do it. One of the sobering truths is that Jesus says the only real out for divorce is adultery. It's a breaking of the covenant. We can go to a courthouse and they can give us a piece of paper, but that doesn't change our standing before God. And as he's talking about this, in the, this nation which was filled with divorce, full of people who were just separating because of the, the matters of the heart that we deal with on an everyday basis, Jesus even goes as far as to saying, if you marry someone who is divorced without the cause of adultery, you become an adulterer and they also become an adulterer. And this was so revolutionary as they're trying to wrestle with, wait a minute, nobody's like this. Nobody's doing this. And his disciples were even wrestling with this, this, this idea in Matthew 9, 10, and 11. It says, Jesus' disciples said to him, if this is the standard, if this is God's original design, he says, if this is the case, it's better not even to marry. Like, who can do this? Who, who can follow this, Jesus. And his response says, not everyone can accept this statement, only those who God helps. So what's he getting at? He's saying, God didn't change his mind. If you want God's best, if you want God's blessing, you have to do it God's way. And the one in whom he helps, the one in whom he blesses, is the one who does it his way. And what's his way? It's that marriage is a relationship between a man and a woman built on a covenant, not curiosity. Marriage is built on covenant, not curiosity. 
In our culture today, we have a hookup, shack up, break up culture, which leads to a divorce culture, essentially. And I know, and I want to be sensitive because there are some of you in here, you've experienced the pain of divorce. I'm not making light of that. I'm not trying to be harsh or come against anyone who, who has dealt with these things. There are some very legitimate and very real reasons why people get divorced. But sometimes it's just as simple as two people being too proud to humble themselves to work out their own problems. And it shouldn't be that way, especially for believers in Jesus Christ. But it happens this way. I believe it's because we build our marriages, our relationships on faulty footing. Everything is about what makes us feel good, what benefits us the most. And for men, that's kind of a chauvinistic way to think about things. What can she do for me? Because it's about me. And for women, it's kind of feministic as he exists as a means to an end. He exists to satisfy my need for love and security. And when she's not satisfying anymore, when she's not doing it for me or he's not doing it for me, then we move on to the next one. It's kind of like the show The Bachelor or The Bachelorette. We're just going to pursue every model until we find the one we like the best. And hopefully, by then, we can settle down. Once we're too old to be sowing youthful oats or we've crossed enough items on our bucket list to be willing to consider settling down. But we're just chasing one curiosity after another. Oh, I wonder what they're like. I wonder what that's going to be like. I wonder what that experience would be like. I wonder what it would be like to be with them or, or go over there and to do that. But God's design for marriage isn't built on curiosity. It's built on covenant. And we see this from the very beginning. In Genesis 2, 18 through 25, it says, God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. Let me speak to the single men in the room today. Let me encourage you, men. God has a just right for you waiting in the wings. God is making you a helper. It's not good to be alone. He said it himself. He knows your loneliness. So he will make, he will choose, he will bring at the right time the person that is just right for you. Notice it wasn't immediate for Adam. After he says this, God then brings every animal he created to Adam to be named. He's like, it's not good for Adam to be alone, but we ain't going to deal with that just yet. We're, we're going to do something else. Adam, why don't, you, why don't you name all the animals for me? And Adam's going through, well, we got dogs, we got cats, we got pigs, we got wildebeests, we got lions. Well, there's, there's two of them, and there's two of them, and we got two of them over there, but there was no helper that could be found for Adam. Until one day, God puts Adam into a deep sleep. How do we know marriage is not built on curiosity? It's because as God is bringing all the animals he made to be named, Adam could not find in all the options one that would work. And the truth we need to hold on to, especially as singles and as parents who want to pass godly principles and wisdom to their children, 
is if you let curiosity lead you, you'll find yourself mingling in the mud with pigs. Too many of our young boys are on the internet mingling with pigs. And that affects their relationship with real people and how they think. It's now becoming an epidemic for women because we're curious, we're curious, we're curious. But in verse 21, God shows us it's not about curiosity. He's put the man to sleep. I love this. Adam went to sleep, and that's when Eve came. Eve was his wildest dreams come true. When you find yourself a wife, men, you find a good thing. It is a gift from the Lord. But he goes to sleep. God took out of his ribs. He closed up the opening. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and brought her to the man. And Adam's freaking out. At last, he exclaims, this one is bone for my bone, flesh for my flesh. She'll be called woman because she was taken from man. And this explains why a man leaves his father and mother, joined to his wife. The two are united into one. And the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Are you catching a theme here? Like Jesus quotes this passage of scripture as he's talking about marriage. Adam clings to his wife. It means he, they were joined together. God put them together by the power of his spirit. So what he put together, no one could separate. And this is the idea of covenant. A covenant is two people coming together in an irrevocable agreement that binds them together. And as long as both follow the covenant, the agreement stands. But when the agreement is broken, when the, when the one party doesn't keep their end of the bargain, that covenant is broken. And over and over again through the Old Testament, when Israel began to break their covenant and worship other gods, God called them adulterers. Because marriage is a covenantal relationship. And it creates a Trinitarian relationship. Think about it. God exists in the Godhead as Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are of the same essence. They are equal in every way. Jesus as much God as the Father is. When a husband and wife come together, what was once two become one by the Holy Spirit. It's now a triune relationship. It's you, your bride, and the Holy Spirit and God. And in this type of relationship, Adam and Eve could be completely naked, completely honest, completely transparent, without any shame or any brokenness. Oh, how many of us would long for that in our relationships? To not have any shame or any brokenness, any baggage. You see, sin destroyed our ability to live in that space. We were kicked out of the garden. And the enemy keeps promoting this brokenness even before we enter into marriage. Just see how much baggage we can accumulate for you. See how many stones we can pack in your backpack so that on your wedding day, you're not just saying I do to your bride. You're saying I do to your bride and all her junk. You're saying I do to your groom and all his junk. The enemy wants us to be broken in marriage. He wants us to become broken before marriage, broken in marriage, and he wants to destroy us after the marriage, sowing death in so many ways. 
But beloved, Jesus came to overthrow the power of the enemy and the works of the enemy. And he did it first by initiating a new covenant. In Matthew 26, 28, he says, this is my blood which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It's poured out as a sacrifice to forgive sin. So all this stuff that's creating brokenness, all the sin, Jesus' new covenant forgives that sin. Enables us to have a new start, a new beginning, to get back up and try again. And Jesus is actually initiating a wedding ceremony in this moment. Like beginning of our service when we observe communion, the bread and the wine, that's a reenactment of our wedding ceremony with the Lord. As we are entering into a covenantal relationship with Almighty God. This is the new covenant. And so, as Adam brought death, Jesus brings us life in this new covenant. Giving his life on the cross, which enables us to be forgiven, to get a clean slate, to have a second chance. Overthrowing the power of death, which is working against our relationships. He through the Holy Spirit, empowers us to overcome the power of sin and death and begin to live according to our original design by his power and in his strength. And how does he make this possible? How is it possible that we can work back towards that, that garden of Eden type place in our marriage, in our relationship? Well, just think about what happened with the enemy. Remember? He was cursed, right? Cursed to slither on the ground. He was cursed to eat what? To eat dust, which also represents death. Jesus entered into the dust and conquered it. And then he came out of the dust into life forevermore. And so what he did on the cross and through his death and resurrection is he broke the power that was infusing our lives and our relationship with so much death so that we could come out of that to live the abundant life that Jesus came to restore. And it wasn't just that he did that in his life and in his death and in his resurrection, but he began to model for us the pathway to that first state, that first relationship through his life. He set an example for us all to show us how to get back to that original design, how to bridge the gap that was divided when sin entered into the world that initiated the battle of the sexes to restore us back to Eden in that first marriage. What did he do? The first thing he restored was true masculinity. He restored true masculinity. God created men for work into war, to fight for righteousness. God created men to fight for the things that matter to the heart of God. God created men to win at all costs. That's how God has created men. There was no one tougher than Jesus Christ. Before he came in the flesh, as the angel of the presence of God, he slew the armies of Syria in a single night. He conquered Egypt through the ten plagues and led the nation of Israel out on dry ground through the Red Sea, parting the sea. He's like, see, you got to get out my way. And he walked them through on dry ground. There's no one tougher than Jesus. What we see in Jesus is true masculinity. It is the power to win, the power to dominate, but the humility to surrender. I can beat you. 
but I love you too much to do that. So I'm going to let you win. I'm going to sacrifice myself for your good. He had legions of angels at his disposal. He even said, I love this, he says, nobody can take my life from me. Rome ain't got nothing on me. I freely lay my life down. And the Father's given me the authority to also take it back up. How confident do you have to be to know that death can't keep me? You, don't, you must not know who I am. You must not know who I am. I am Yahweh God. Death cannot hold me. The grave has no power over me. But Jesus also restored true femininity. You see, true femininity is being strong enough to stand, bold enough to speak, but for love, choosing peace. In Philippians 2, the Bible records that Jesus was equal with the Father in every way. But he submitted himself to the Father's will to the point of being a servant, even to death, the death on the cross. The remedy to selfishness and pride is the opposite of itself. It's sacrificial love. And so even though men and women are completely equal and equally important, equally valued, they occupy different roles in the relationship. When Jesus submitted himself, what was the result? Jesus getting a name which is higher than any other name. The Father elevated him. So Jesus came to demonstrate how we are to retrain our minds. Again, Genesis 2.18, he says, The Lord said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. Adam was given a mission and a job. Adam was given authority. Him naming the animals was walking in that authority. He was partnering with God. Many scholars believe that Adam occupied a position similar to a high priest in the divine counsel of God in the Garden of Eden. But Adam couldn't fulfill his job because he was incomplete. So what did God do? He made a helper. That same term helper is used in the Psalms to describe God as our Savior. So man isn't good alone. He needs a savior. And God created woman to be just right for him. He custom fit her to be what the man couldn't be and do what the man couldn't do. He would bear seed. She would carry the seed in pregnancy. He would toil in the field. She would toil in the home. But they would do it together in concert, partnering together, not lording over each other in complete complementation of one another. Paul says that a true spirit-led, God-honoring relationship is not a chauvinistic relationship or a feministic relationship. It's one of true equality that begins with equal submission. In Ephesians 5.21, it starts out this way. He says, and further, submit to one another. Somebody say, submit to one another. And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You want to honor God with your life? Submit to each other. It's not the man is in charge and he gets to rule and make all the decisions. No, you're submitting to one another. This is a partnership. This is just as God partnered with Adam, God is worthy of all praise and honor, but God shares his authority with Adam to do the work. 
And so that is mirrored in our human relationship with marriage as God has raised up the man to be the spiritual leader, but it's not to be Lord through domination. It's to be partnered one to another, submitted one to another. And he goes on that if we want to honor Jesus in our relationships, this is how we do it. And we're just going to read the text. He says, for wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He's the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she'll be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body but feeds and cares for it just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother's joined to his wife and the two are united into one. And this is a great mystery. But it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. What he's getting at is this, there is a relationship God has instituted. It's called marriage. It's one of mutual submission. And here's how it works. The wife submits to the leadership of her husband, and the husband kills himself trying to honor and please his wife. As he is sacrificing his needs, desires, and wants, and selfish desires to better his wife, she returns with honor and reverence as she would the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a symbiotic relationship that includes mutual submission, and it's a mystery. Paul says this is a mystery. God didn't just want to create a way for us to have babies. The first marriage and every marriage subsequent after that is a prophetic revelation of Jesus and his church, of Jesus and the bride. So when we come together in covenant relationship, what are we doing? We're telling the gospel with our lives. So men, we have the privilege of honoring our brides like the way Jesus honored his by serving and sacrificing and laying ourselves down and wives you have the honor of honoring your husbands as the church honors Christ by following his leadership. And how does he want us to lead? Not through chauvinism. Not through domination. He wants us to lead by sacrificing ourselves, laying ourselves down. In our culture today, there's this battle, and it really is who's going to lead in the home. And I just think of a ship if a ship had two helms and two rudders and two captains, what's going to happen? You're just going to spin in a circle. You ain't going to go nowhere. And why is there so much dysfunction? It's because we have too many chiefs and not enough Indians. The man needs to understand that his head is Christ. And his example is Christ. And how did he love his bride? It wasn't putting my foot down. This is just the way it is. It's by leading by example. I'm not going to tell you what to do. 
I'm going to show you how to do it. I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm going to show you how to do it. And it begins with love. And as men who are responsible for the patriarchy, and I believe even responsible for fanning the flame of feminism in our world, we need to take responsibility to squash the flames of feminism by following the example of Christ and living a self-sacrificing sacrificing life to take care of our wives and our families. And in my heart of hearts, I believe there's not a woman on the planet who, if she was married to a self-sacrificing man, would not follow him to the ends of the earth. My heart of hearts. Why? Because that's how God designed it. That's how God designed it. So men, we sacrifice our, for our wives. Wives, how do we respond to our husbands? By following his leadership. And I love this in Genesis 1.28. See, it's often said that the men is the head of the home. Well, if the man is the head, the woman's the neck. She can turn the head whichever way she wants, to, wants it to go. But what I love about the scriptures in Genesis 1.28, when God is giving them their instructions... It says, and God blessed them. Somebody say them. So God blessed them. Not him. Them. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish of the sea. Notice that he blessed both of them. The man and the woman together. He gave them their purpose. It's one purpose. It's one mission. It's one job. And he gave them both the authority to complete it together to govern the earth to reign over creation because it's a perfect partnership not one in front of the other but side by side not dominating but in humble submission and I believe in our day today especially as men as the spiritual leaders of the home it is up to us to help Jesus in his restoration work as he's restoring what it is to be a biblical man as he's restoring the understanding of what is biblical marriage, I believe it's incumbent upon us in our day-to-day -to, -day to take the first step and be the example to our family and to our kids that we need to be. We need to take up our mantle as the heads of our homes and be like Christ. And so as a prophetic declaration of joining Jesus in his journey, I would like to ask all the men to stand. What did Jesus do for us? He met us where we were. He didn't demand. He didn't command. He loved. And so let's love the women in our lives. And let's go join them where they are. Men. Will you come over and join us on this side of the auditorium? It's Jesus that brings us together. It's Jesus that is healing. I believe it's Jesus and his example that is going to continue to heal the divide between men and women. As men put down chauvinism, 
We pick up chivalry. We honor the women in our lives. We build them up. We strengthen them. We pursue covenant. Young men, we pursue covenant, not curiosity. We elevate them. We teach women their value. They're not beneath us, but we honor them as if they are above us. We begin to change the dynamic and watch Jesus shift the rift in our culture as boys honor girls and grow up to be men who honor women. And I promise you, I believe this with my whole heart, that if we begin to take this on, you're going to see women begin to honor men. And the shields and swords of feminism begin to lay down as the church submits to Christ. You see, Satan cannot divide a united house. So, beloved in the church, let there be no divisions among us. Let there be no divisions among us, but be united in the spirit, in our most holy faith in Jesus Christ. And maybe today you live in a divided house. Maybe there are some resentments in your heart. Maybe you've had experiences where you've experienced the pain of chauvinism or the pain of rejection or feminism. And there's some resentments in your heart. There are some perceptions that you have about the other sex that are negative. You just believe that all men are from Mars. And all the dudes think all the women are flying around from Venus. Whatever it is. I believe God first wants to get a hold of our hearts. Maybe you harbor resentment in your heart because of something your spouse did or something somebody did to you or from stories you've heard growing up. I believe God is calling us to join him in healing the world, to continue where he left off, to bring us back to Eden. So what in your heart do you need to release to the Lord? What perceptions, what struggles, what beliefs? Is it chauvinism? Men, is it chauvinism? We need to repent of that. Women, is it feminism? Do you look down your nose at men? We need to repent. And the beauty of repentance is that Jesus already paid for those sins. It's already paid for. He already took care of it. He paid it with his own blood. He paid for that attitude. He paid for that action, that behavior. He covered it in the new covenant so that you can let go of it and find healing and change in your heart. And as we release this stuff, as we say, God, we're not going to follow the way the world is going, but we want you to transform the way we think. We're going to see more healing, more restoration, more peace, more health, and with stronger families comes a stronger church and a stronger nation. And I believe this is what God wants for all of us. So thank you, Jesus, for showing us the way. Thank you, Lord, for the new covenant, this new wedding that we get to be a part of and prepare for. And God, I pray for the ones here, Lord, that, that are just wrestling with these attitudes because of the real pain that brought them on. I pray, Jesus, you'd help them see with fresh eyes that it's not a male or female thing. It's a sin thing.
And we all have it. And we've all fallen short of God's glorious standard. But it's Jesus who paid for it. So we don't need to point fingers at anyone else because Jesus took, took the punishment for it. Jesus took the responsibility for it. And now we can look at one another with fresh eyes. God, I pray for every marriage in this room, whether it's hindering on collapse or it's through the roof in success, God, I pray that you would guard and protect, that you would fight for it, you would strengthen it, God, that you would bring healing where there is pain, you'd bring strength where there is weakness. And God, I pray as the people of God, we would stop the divide. But you would help us all walk in our lane to bring you glory with our lives. That pride would not be the main motivator of our hearts, but it would be love for Christ that enables us to love each other enough to submit one to another. God, I thank you that you conquered death. The power of sin is broken. And we can rise in victory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand to our feet for just a few minutes. From all of us at Vertical Life Church, we want to say thank you for listening. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please consider making a tax-deductible donation www.blchurch.tv forward slash give. Thank you and God bless.